Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This podcast has featured many episodes on the Fort King Road. This week, we explore the Seminole Trail. The trail is a patchwork of sights and scenes throughout Florida that are related to the Seminole Indians. In Traveling Florida, Seminole Trail, a complete guide to Seminole Indian historic and cultural sites, Doug Alderson hits the road to discover and assess the Seminole footprint in Florida. In short, his book covers the breadth of Seminole history from the Panhandle to the Florida Keys. Doug takes readers to the old Negro Fort site in the Panhandle, the Alachua Savannah near Gainesville, the Dade Battlefield in Bushnell, the Smallwood Store in the 10,000 Islands, Indian Key in the Florida Keys, and the destroyed sugar plantations near St. Augustine, and everywhere else in between the Seminoles kept the presence. An author of 15 books, Doug Alderson writes about the historic and dynamic nature of his home state of Florida. His books include this one, for which he recently published an updated second edition. Of note to listeners, he penned a new guide to old Florida attractions, which the Florida Writers Association placed in the top five of published books for 2017. He's won four first place Royal Palm Literary Awards for travel books and several other state and national writing and photography awards. Additionally, his articles and photographs have been featured in numerous magazines, including Native Peoples, Wildlife Conservation, American Forests, Sea Kayaker, Sierra, and Mother Earth News. Doug Alderson, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. Great to be here and great to talk with you, Patrick, about traveling the Great Florida Seminole Trail and other topics of interest. Doug, what is the Seminole Trail? The Seminole Trail is it's somewhat figurative. There's not a marked trail. In the book, I pretty much follow the chronology of the Seminole history. It really ends up being geographic. Can we say where it starts and where it ends? It struck me about 25 years ago when I was doing some research that it really starts in North Florida. And in the Florida experience, it ends in South Florida in the Everglades area. Of course, Oklahoma is part of that, and the Bahamas and some other places where Seminoles ended up. But in the Florida experience, it really covers almost the breadth of the entire state. And so the book follows the Seminole history fairly geographically, and you can do that. Where does the name Seminole Trail come from? The term Seminole Trail is not unique with me. I first came across it a few years ago when I was reading Brent Weissman's book, Unconquered People. He mentioned that in his last chapter and listed a couple sites, and I thought... Well, this is intriguing. You know, it's something that could be expanded upon and made it real appealing to the general public. And that's the purpose of my book is to pique the interest of visitors and residents of Florida that may be interested in Seminole history, but they may not be scholars. And this is kind of their introduction to the Seminole history. And they can actually physically visit sites that have interpretation. Didn't want them to go and just see a historic sign, but something that maybe is more involved, a museum, a reenactment something that really helps to engage them and they can kind of feel the seminal history that went on there. How did you get the idea to do this book about the Seminole Trail? I started researching a novel I wrote called Seminole Freedom about an escaped slave who joins the Seminoles and follows the Seminoles through the First and Second Seminole War. And so that was kind of like the chronology of history and then she ended up in Everglades as well. And so that kind of piqued my interest that maybe I should do a nonfiction guidebook kind of covering 
a lot of that history and the historic sites that are there. What did you discover in writing this book? What surprised me is the number of historic sites that are there that are open to the public. Some obviously are in private land, some major battles that are still on private land, and and you may see a historic sign by a roadside or in a town or something, but there are some major sites that are open for uh, the public and museum displays and the reenactments that went on. And I didn't realize there were the reenactments with the Seminole War. I was more familiar with some of the Civil War reenactments. So I was pleasantly surprised to witness the Dade reenactment a few years ago and how well that was done and how well received it was. I think there was probably several hundred people there when I was there. And it was so well done because I just read Ransom Clark's account. He was one of the lone survivors, along with Alligator's account, a Seminole leader. They really covered it well, and they condensed the battle down from, you know, like four hours to less than an hour. They did a great job with it, with the interpretation and the visual battle in front of you. I was just really impressed with that. And I followed that up with the Okeechobee battle reenactment as well. That was done very well as well. And the Okeechobee one, it was the largest pit staged battle of the war, but it's hard to get enough reenactors to kind of give you that feeling that this was hundreds of people involved with this battle on both sides. And it's hard to get enough reenactors to really portray that. <laughs> I think there was 20 or 30 on each side <laughs> during the reenactment. The state of Florida publishes a travel guide to Seminole War sites and to sites from Native Americans in Florida. How does this book differ? There's a Native American site guide that covers Native American history around the state, and it's a booklet brochure, and it covers more than just Seminoles. It covers other Native American history, and that's very important. This, I try to get a little more in-depth so to where a site has an individual chapter. The major sites, I, I include a chapter. I try to quote some of the historic counts as well as interview some of the reenactors and contemporary people, uh, including some Seminoles as well. So I try to bring it into the present day that way and how people are still feeling these battles and why they're doing these reenactments and so forth, because you know, there's no living person from the Seminole Wars, but it still is alive in, in many ways in our state's history and these reenactments help bring it to the present day for the current audience. What did you hope to achieve with this book? So I just wanted to go more in depth and I wanted to bring it to the general public. It's not meant for scholars. I used a lot of scholarly work and there's some great books out there that I drew from, but it's really meant to bring it to the layperson and maybe that will pique their interest to explore some of these other books that are wonderful by different historians that I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. I tried to give a background beforehand. If somebody wants to visit the site, they can read a pretty good history of it before they visit it. For example, when I went to the Dade reenactment, I mentioned I read the different accounts. And so that really gave me a little more of a grasp of it. So when I saw the battle, I went, gosh, they're doing it just like the account. They're doing such a great job of this battle because I'd read the accounts. And that really helps. And so I'm hoping that people will read the book when they visit a site, they read it beforehand, and they can grasp it a little bit better when they do visit, and they go a little more in-depth than just breezing through there like on a tourist attraction. So it's more than a tourist attraction, these sites. These are, this is historical, and it means a lot to a lot of people. I really want them to appreciate the current Seminole Indians because these people, if you look at the last few generations, they're a study and resilience and adaptability. <laughs> For what they went through and the handful of survivors that made it in Florida, because most of them were removed to Oklahoma, but the ones that remained and how they're still here and adapting and doing quite well at the moment, by the way, and they're going to continue to evolve. Native Americans are not frozen in time. They continue to evolve like all of us. And so it's going to be interesting to see their culture in 50 or 100 years. 
And I think you'll still see some iconic elements of their culture survive, you know, patchwork clothing and some of their images. And they're going to keep some of their ceremonial ways and some of their customs, I think, will survive. And in other ways, they're going to be continuing to adapt to the modern culture. And we certainly see that with the casinos and everything. Can you really say the Seminole influence spreads throughout the state of Florida? The Seminole influence spans the entire state. That's kind of what I wanted to show in the book, why I started the book in North Florida and all the way down to Indian Key, down the Keys, because there was a battle there as well. So it really covers the entire state. So just about anywhere you go in the state, you're going to step into some Seminole history, whether it's on the Apalachicola River in North Florida or the East Coast with the uh, ruins of the sugar mill plantations, Fort Marion, where the great escape happened with Kawakuchi, Wildcat, and some of his warriors escaped, on on down to the Everglades. And to uh, I went to Indian Key. I pedaled my kayak out there and walked the Indian Key where it was raided by Seminoles who came by dugout canoe. So just all these things, anywhere you go, you're going to find some seminal history. Some of it's pretty apparent. Some of it you're going to have to do some research and locate it. And besides what's in the book, there's probably about 200 historic signs around the state that you could just see where different things happen or the location of a village site here and there. So there's more than what I cover in the book as well. Didn't have room to cover every historic sign in the state, but there's, there's more depth that someone could go if they wanted to re- research seminal history. And it's still going on. Seminoles are still making history in the state, so it hasn't stopped. <laughs> Where does your book begin? I start the first chapter with the Appalachian Indians, believe it or not, in Tallahassee at San Luis Mission Site, because what happened to the original Florida Indians, 1600s and 1700s, really influences why the mostly Creek bands came down into Florida. So most of them, like the Appalachians, got pretty much wiped out and moved west with the Spanish. So that opened the way for vast tracts of Florida that really didn't have any large Native American populations. There was a few remnant populations. So the Creek Indians came in looking for deerskin. The deerskin trade had a huge influence on why these people moved in because they had to get these deer skins to get what they wanted. And also they were felt a little safer in Florida for the most part, at least in the beginning from the settlers moving into the Georgia and Alabama, South Carolina. And so I started out with the Appalachian Indians just to show what happened when they were dispersed and how eventually the Creek Indians came down and settled uh, this region. Then I moved to the Apalachicola River, which was a major site on for many different bands of Seminoles and escaped slaves and free blacks at a place called Prospect Bluff was kind of like the centerpiece. And that was a British fort that was turned over to the escaped slaves and the Seminoles. And there were some Choctaw Indians and other Indians there as well. Eventually, that was blown up in a battle with the American Navy on the Apalachicola River. Now, a couple of years later, the first Seminole War occurred on that river. Andrew Jackson brought his forces and moved to the east to the Suwannee River, where he stopped. He burned villages there and that's where he turned around. That influenced the easterly movement of the Seminoles. So after that, I follow the migrations farther south to central Florida during the treaty lands there. And eventually the Americans wanted to force them to Oklahoma. And so then the second Seminole War started. And eventually the bands retreated into the Everglades, the remaining bands. So this occurred over a major span of about 50 years where a lot of the wars and, and, and movement occurred. Of course, the span of time is a lot longer. I also cover what happens when the Seminoles were trying to adapt to the changes in the Everglades with the draining and the overhunting that was going on and so forth. It's when they started to evolve into uh, doing things for tourists in Miami area, especially in the Tamiami Trail. The Seminoles became adept at making things and doing alligator wrestling and so forth for tourists. And I bring that on up to the present day where now it's the casinos. And so the Seminoles actually can hire outside people to do alligator wrestling and some of these type of things. 
So I did go down and visit some of the contemporary villages for tourists, like at the Miccosukee Indian Village, and talk to the contemporary alligator wrestler there. And he's not Miccosukee or Seminole. He was hired by the tribe to wrestle alligators. And so it's kind of interesting take on it that Seminoles now teach other people how to wrestle, and they work for their villages. <laughs> Doug, what is it in your background that makes you ideal to have written this book on the Florida Seminole Trails? Yeah, a little bit about my background. I have a little Iroquois heritage, but living in here in Tallahassee area since I was 11, I got to know a lot of mostly Muscogee descendants in this North Florida region since I was about 21, and now I'm 64. So it's been most of my adult life, and I've been attending the ceremonial grounds of Muscogee descendants since I was about 21. We had some Seminole visitors on occasion, especially uh, Mary and Archie Johns and her family, and they were from the Brighton Reservation. So I got to know them very well, and then some of their nephews and nieces nieces and daughters and kids and so forth. I visited the Brighton Reservation a couple times. And then I came to work at the Tallahassee Museum. And we had a Native American festival every year in the 1990s. And we brought Seminole people up from South Florida and got to know a uh, made jumper and and some of the leaders in the Seminole tribe, and they came up every year and they demonstrated for us and sold different crafts and food and so forth. It was just a great relationship, and we look forward to their visits every year. And Bobby Henry, the dugout canoe building demonstrations and so forth. Just over time, I got to know some of the Seminole people and appreciated their humor and their ways of knowledge, their ways of life, and just down-to-earth people, really fun to be with and very deep in some ways. When I started the book, I I contacted James Billy, who was the chairman of the tribe. We have a mutual friend, Dan Penton, who's a Muscogee leader. James Billy called me up, and he was very impressed. He read a couple chapters and gave me a lot of encouragement. Kind of gave me the stamp of approval in my mind that it was okay to do this book. I didn't want to do it without any contact with some of the leadership for the Seminole tribe. And when I went to some of the reenactments, I started talking with some of the Seminole reenactors as well and interviewed them, and they were seemed very happy with the book as I really enjoyed my visits at the museum, too, the Atafiki, down in the Big Cypress Reservation. And I stayed at Billy Swamp Safari in one of the Chicky cabins, and I just thoroughly enjoyed that visit. Met some very nice people, and they were very gracious and let me talk to them and take some pictures. I just never really had any roadblocks, so I felt good about pursuing the book and getting the publisher, Pineapple Press, and they were happy to do it. And so now in the second edition just came out in August. All right, Doug, what's new in the book? What's the update all about? Yeah, so one of the main things that I updated some of the figures, some of the modern seminal figures I had in the back in the last chapter, but some new work being done at Prospect Bluffs in the Apache River by Dale Cox and some of the Forest Service archaeologists there. And so they also renamed the site to Prospect Bluff Historic Sites versus Fort Gadsden Historic Site because there's several different forts and a trading post there, so it's more than one fort that was there. So I wanted to update the name of the place, and also they've reinterpreted the graveyard that's existing there. They think that was the graveyard for the soldiers that were there after Andrew Jackson's invasion when they occupied the site. And they think the, the people that died in the big explosion in 1816 were buried in a mass grave not too far away. And they even put, brought in cadaver dogs. They all pointed to the same spot. And so they think they were buried in a mass grave nearby that was unmarked. So that was new information. The major change on the historic sites as far as the work I uncovered. I added a Dade Memorial in St. Augustine. That I added that as a site, too. That was not in the first book. 
I'll clean up some language here and there and some facts and figures, but I think the Prospect Bluff site was the major site that's that's been reinterpreted a bit. And Dale Cox has a book out on Prospect Bluff that's excellent. It's a great resource, and that only came out last year. So I sent him the chapter, and he was fine with it, the revised chapter, so very happy with that. I admit that I'm not a historian as far as in the caliber of Joe Kanish and Dale Cox and many other people. And so I'm really a writer that likes to write, interpret some of these historical works and in other areas, some of the biological works and other avenues I've written about and try to make that understandable to the public and appealing to the public because they may not want to plow through some of these works that I've plowed through but they may like to read mine and some of the other books that are very readable for more of the general public. And that's our goal. If we want this history to be remembered and honored, I think we do need to reach out and make it very appealing and understandable to each generation that comes along. And that's been my goal most of my life is to do that type of writing. In researching this book, what most surprised you? I was mostly pleasantly surprised by most of the sites. I think the Okeechobee battle was only disappointing because I'd read the accounts. I knew how large it was and how many hundreds of people were on each side. It was just a little disappointing to see the pool of reenactors. I know it's hard to get enough reenactors, and I just hope that each year that will build up to more people to get some feel. I was a little bit disappointed with that, but I understand it. I mean, it can't. we're not at the level of Gettysburg reenactments at this point in Florida. But the day reenactment is going on a lot longer, and I understand that they really have honed their story down, and they have people come back year after year, and they do a wonderful job with that one. So I'm hoping the Okeechobee one will kind of do that over time. Over time, they will become like the Dade reenactment. I was still impressed with it, but that was the only place I was a little bit disappointed. But I was pleasantly surprised with, like I mentioned, the Dade reenactment. I enjoyed visiting Hillsborough River State Park and the fort there. They did a good job in interpretation. They had some reenactors there. Their reconstructed fort was excellent. They used some of the original plans, and you could really see how they really did a great job of reconstructing that fort in the Hillsborough River. And to get a feel for that infirmary, when I went in there, when they mentioned the three levels of bunks, the first bunk are for the people that are probably going to recover of a wound or something or a sickness. The middle bunk, you got about a 50-50 chance. And if you went on the third bunk, the top bunk, you're pretty much hopeless. <laughs> just just standing there thinking about that was just a little bit of, I was kind of heartfelt just feeling that emotion that must have gone on in places like that. The Dade reenactment is probably my top reenactment I've ever been to. I've been to a couple Civil War ones, and I enjoyed the Dade one better than those. So I definitely want to return to that one. I highly recommend that to anybody who wants to see a reenactment. Places like Indian Key State Park, they've done a great job of leaving it fairly natural, and they have all the foundations. They have the streets lined up with the streets named of the original town that was there in the 1830s. And so that was impressive to walk around that and understand the history that went on there. The San Luis Mission site in Tallahassee has a council house they reconstructed, and it's gigantic. When you get in there, it just takes your breath away because they could fit a couple thousand people in this council house, and they reconstructed it to the original dimensions. And those are similar to what the Creek Indians did, and so many different villages had these huge council houses that People don't realize that these were pretty large villages and they had dwellings that big that could fit most of the tribe inside around council house like this. I encourage anybody to visit that in Tallahassee at the San Luis Missions. How long did it take to pull all this together into a book? Oh, let's see. Well, it did take some time. What I enjoy about writing books, it's a bit like a treasure hunt because you find one piece of a treasure or one clue, but it leads you to another one, or it might lead you to three different ones. And so that's the way this book was. I would research a couple sites, but that would branch off, and I would realize, oh, I need to cover the sugar mill plantations. I need to cover the Fort Marion. I need to cover this and that. And so it, 
it would just lead me down these different paths. I think the only challenge is just physically I made, I didn't make one trip to cover all of them. I made several different trips around the state. But somebody feasibly could take this book and start in the Apalachicola River and follow it the entire way all the way down to Indian Key if they wanted to. Maybe end up at a casino if they wanted to gamble. <laughs> what I did, it took me a couple years and I did several different trips and bought a lot of books, mostly on eBay, from a lot of different authors. Besides the ones from historians, I enjoyed the first-person accounts. So there's some people that have reprinted some of the accounts of different soldiers, like Lieutenant Prince, I believe. And, of course, I already had the surgeon in the Seminole War. I've, let me think, think of his name. Mott's book, I had his. And some of the shorter articles, the first-person accounts from the Seminole Indians, the different accounts of the Okeechobee battle. It was a little bit hard in the Okeechobee battle because you would read one account and then you would read another account and they would the debate over the Missouri volunteers. Taylor would call them yellow or chicken and then other people would defend them and they would just were kind of like cannon fodder. It was very sad because he sent them in the line of fire basically right down the middle. So that was interesting to find several accounts of that battle from different viewpoints. And the Seminole accounts, of course, were very interesting. And the, the alligator's account pretty much matches up with the other accounts of the battle at the, the Dade battle. So that was just a matter of uncovering the different history and stuff and some of the challenges and trying to get enough source material and enough reference books to feel I was comfortable interpreting the, the history. Someone reading your book may be surprised at how widespread Seminole history is throughout the state of Florida. I think the depth of the Seminole history in the state is pretty amazing. If I wanted to ever expand on it, I would probably go out to Oklahoma. Seminoles went out to Texas. They went to Mexico. Black Seminoles, of course, too. And they went to the Bahamas. That's Black Seminole. They still identify with themselves as Black Seminole, one group out there. So I did uncover some of that to where it was like very interesting how far they branched out after the Second Seminole War, different parts of the country. You have to realize the Seminoles in Oklahoma outnumber the Florida Seminoles probably four to one. And most of the people in Oklahoma speak Muscogee. I speak a little Muscogee, but most of the ones in South Florida speak Miccosukee. It's interesting how that happened. And how in Oklahoma, they get some clans like the Alligator Clan. In Florida, they pretty much lost the Alligator Clan and some other ones. So the largest clan in Florida is called the Big Town Clan because a lot of people don't have a clan anymore because their mother is not Seminole. And the clans are passed through the mother side. So they created part of their adaptability. They created the Big Town Clan. That's for all the people that don't have a clan. So they're part of this Big Town Clan. Doug, why do this? Why do we care? Why is this important that you cover the Seminole Trail as a way of discussing Seminole history in the state of Florida? I think understanding our history is very important. When I write about the rivers, I write about rivers and natural areas. I also include a lot of the histories. They understand what went on in this site before they came there, because they may just see a lot of trees, but they don't realize there may have been a town here, may have been a village here. And I just think that's part of our responsibility as Floridians to understand our history here. And it may help us as we go forward in the modern life, because here in the past, we think of ourselves in some ways many ways, a democratic society that regards everybody as equal today. But back then, we were willing to move an entire people to Oklahoma because they were in the way of American expansion. So attitudes have changed and policies have changed to where hopefully this type of thing wouldn't go on again. That's what history can teach us is we don't want to repeat certain things. The Seminole removals, which was, you know happened with the Cherokees and many other people in the East, was a very sad chapter in history, and we don't want to repeat that in a different circumstance. I think that helps people, uh, history come alive when they visit the site, when they talk to some of the reenactors, talk to historians. I met some great people that can really help interpret history, they in character even. That helps too, I think, 
they make an impression on young people. You know, young people are supposed to learn Florida history, and it's a lot easier to visit a site and visit with maybe a reenactor or an interpreter than it is just to read a book. So I think doing both is very important. Doug, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm finishing up a book on the different ways Florida has been promoted through the generations. There's some fairly common themes, and so with a lot of images, it's going to be an all-color book of images starting around the 1870s and going up to the present day, and how some of these images got started, like the bathing beauties. Images got started in Miami Beach by Carl Fisher, started that trend in the early 1920s, and just where things started and how they are continuing today. <laughs> Some things haven't changed a whole lot. And how Florida was, a lot of exaggerations went on to appeal to northerners to come to Florida and to invest in Florida. So that's been kind of And they go into the Florida land boom of 1925, which is fascinating. There's a magazine that came out. It's called Sunnyland Magazine. And that was just filled with ads from all over Florida advertising, you know, investment opportunities and this and that. And there were claims that the boom's going to continue. It's not going to collapse. And of course, by 1926, it pretty much collapsed. <laughs> and uh, then they hit a hurricane, it hit Miami, and then the Great Depression hit a few years later. And But we continue to grow. So Florida keeps reviving the land booms. I don't think we've really learned too much from that experience <laughs> from 1925. Doug, what motivates you to research and write about either the Seminoles or Florida history? like to tell people that a lot of writers say, write what you know. And in this case, I wanted to write about what I wanted to know. I wanted to research this more. And so I like to write about things that I want to research and learn more for my own benefit as well. I look forward to diving into more Florida history. And these type of books, you're not going to make a living at it, really. And you're not going to make a lot of money. So just have fun with it and really expand your knowledge and your relationships. You meet a lot of interesting people and make new friends and just enjoy the experience. I enjoy the writing part, the research part, and the promotion part. So it's all good to me. That'll have to do it. Doug Alderson, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. All right, thank you very much, Patrick. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, Provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.